Welcome back to At The Source. I'm your host, Alex Ryder, recording from a pillow fort in my bedroom, as per usual. So between the 13th and the 19th of June, I'll be taking the Russian challenge, eating the same rations as a Syrian refugee for one week to raise money, which Concern Worldwide will spend on emergency food, healthcare and life-saving support for Syrian refugees in Jordan, as well as internationally displaced people in countries like Lebanon, Bangladesh, South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The reason I'm telling you this, aside from hoping that you might want to sponsor me, is that today's guest is someone who knows this challenge well. Danny Harvey is the Executive Director of Concern Worldwide UK, the charity behind the challenge, and she's seen poverty firsthand through her career in international development, which has actually taken her all over the world. Prior to her current role, she's lived and worked in Zambia and before that, Cambodia. We're going to be chatting about her life and work to date and understanding more about the focus behind the Russian challenge, Syrian refugees. Since the start of the Syrian war in 2011, more than 13 million people have been left in need of humanitarian aid. Over half of the country's population has fled and there are an estimated 5.6 million refugees seeking safety in neighbouring countries. This is an absolutely shocking situation and one that I feel like many of us here in the UK, including myself, don't actually know too much about. This is going to be a little bit different from other episodes in that it's quite a heavy subject and actually we don't talk that much about food but I think it's a really important topic and I was really really pleased to have Danny join me. Once you've listened to this episode if you're a subscriber on my Patreon channel there will also be a bonus episode in which Danny shares the stories of real refugees that she's met and worked with in Lebanon so do head over to patreon.com slash at the source and and have a look out for that. Enough from me let's chat to Danny. Thanks Alex it's great to be here. I really appreciate you joining me when you've had such a busy day and now it's five o'clock in the evening and I'm about to hit you with a load of questions. So we'll see how we go. (laughs) Okay. So my first question, I guess, is to ask what exactly is international development um, and how, how do you get into that as a role? So I guess international development is it's taking a global view and a sort of sense of global responsibility for, for people's well-being and the well-being of families and communities and, and, and others um, beyond sort of the borders of your state. Within international development, we think about things like access to good health care. We think about having a good education that equips you for life, being food secure. We look at statistics like at the moment, there's 142 million people who face severe food shortages. And so I guess we're thinking about how can we address that? How can we ensure that people and, and families are food secure? Um, we're looking at statistics like 80 million people are, are forcibly displaced from their homes at the moment and need support for shelter or, or sanitation. Um, and how can we support people like that? So I guess it's a little bit about saying a sense of sort of global responsibility for people's well-being and, and, a, and, a, and an effort to try and make things better. I don't know how people get into it. You can you can be qualified to do it. For me, I met some people when I was backpacking who worked for the UN and hearing what they were doing and understanding the difference that you could make. I came back to the UK and did a master's in tropical agriculture and natural resource management. And that's what sort of gave me a basic sort of technical understanding that enabled me to get my first position, which coincidentally was with Concern, who I work with now, and was as a volunteer. 
Um, so I went to Cambodia with them as my first job. It sounds like such a, a fantastic role and important role for people to be doing, but it is quite interesting that there's probably quite a few different routes that you can go into it because it doesn't sound like there's a degree that you can take in international development, but actually there's a few different routes that you can get into it. So you said that you started in Cambodia. Can you tell us a bit about the the work that you did there? And and you also worked elsewhere, didn't you, before you took on your current role at the UK Concern Office? You know, my first few jobs um, starting in Cambodia were mostly around agriculture. So a lot of work with farmers looking at how they could increase their yields, how they could increase their incomes from farming, um, how they could make their farming more sustainable and increasingly actually looking at how to make it if you like climate smart, so a little bit resilient to all the climate variables that we're seeing as a result of climate change. And then I started to do a lot more work with women and working much more on gender equality. I don't think I had realized how much of a barrier the inequality between men and women was for women and girls to get access to a good education, to have good health care, to have a livelihood um, and to, to keep the keep control of the, their incomes and make decisions about how they spent money in the household and the community and how little voice women often have in, in communities and at a local sort of political level. So I've done a lot of work on gender equality, trying to make sure women are represented and have voice and have mm. access to resources. Um, and that kind of has followed me up until now. But I've done a lot of different roles. I was in East Timor, Timor-Leste, um, not long after independence, working there in what was the, the world's newest nation at the time. I did some work in Indonesia after the, the tsunami, and I spent the last 10 or so years in, in Uganda and Zambia, so in Africa. Um, the last role was as a, as a country director, so like concerns representative um, in Zambia um, and supporting the, the, the work that we were doing there. It's absolutely incredible. And to hear about some of the places that you've, you've experienced, it's, um, yeah, extremely different to being here in the UK. And so you lived in Zambia for six years it must have been such a culture shock for you to come back to the UK. And you came back quite recently, didn't you? So I think you took on this role not long before the pandemic started. Yeah. So, I, you know, I came back to the UK um, in at the end of 2019, expecting it to be different. And then it was really different. <laughs> so I've been in lockdown. We went into lockdown in concern a, a week early. So from the 16th of March up until now, I'm still remote working. So it's been um, a double culture shock, I guess. Yeah. Mm. What do you think was the, the strangest for you to be to have been out in Africa for 10 years and then come back to the UK, aside from the fact that it's, um, yeah, working from home is a completely strange experience for all of us. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the oddest things was um, getting used to seasons again, especially during lockdown, because I've everywhere I've worked has been pretty near to the equator. So I'm used to, I've gone on to these 12 hour days. Naturally, I found, and I think a lot of my colleagues did as well, this winter was quite hard and having these very short days and dark evenings. And the other thing that, you know, that I guess we were starting to see a little bit in Zambia before I left, but this incredible world of deliveries, 
we had a postal service which didn't really work and we started to have some takeout deliveries mm. but the extent of that that infrastructure and how well it works here was 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 astonishing and has has yeah just been a real experience it's changed so much as well even over the last year when i think about i was already a, an online shopper and as you know many of us are but i think even in the last year the amount of stuff that you can now get delivered to your door is crazy uh, and, you know, we're so fortunate to have that. I mean, I'm quite lucky that both myself and my partner have a job working from home and we've not wanted for anything, despite the fact that we're living in a global pandemic and can't see our friends and family. But really, that's the the extent of it. I think we're, we're incredibly fortunate to be able to get like a Starbucks delivered to your house now, although why you'd want to, I don't know, a coffee to your house, which would probably be cold by the time it arrives is beyond me. But there you go. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, that's been amazing. Uh, and, you know, I'm a complete convert now to, to the delivery of the weekly shop. Mm. Um, mm. It saves a lot of effort. So as the executive director of Concern in the UK office, what does a typical working day look like for you? I'm not going to tell you how much emails and meetings is in the day because I don't think that's <laughs> what you really want to hear about. So it's pretty varied. We have a great communications team. So we might be looking at something like a press release or a web page talking about our work or something that we want to sort of help people understand that we're doing. We might be looking at um, some of our fundraising work. So at the moment, we have a weekly look at the, the statistics for the Ration Challenge, how that's performing. Or we've just gone through the end of last year, uh, developing a new um, way for people to support us by supporting um, female entrepreneurs, so women who are setting up and running their own small businesses. So we might be looking at that. We might be thinking about how we influence externally. So we see it as important to, to talk to the UK government about how they could support other countries better. Um, so this sort of policy and advocacy work. And at the moment, I, I don't know if your listeners know, but we're seeing very big cuts to overseas aid from the UK. So we're trying to feed back that information um, and try and help government see the impact that that's actually having on on people that we work with um and we might be having a briefing so at the beginning of the week i talked to the country representative for us for a concern in lebanon to talk about some of the syrian refugees there and how the latest set of lockdowns and restrictions were affecting them so there's it's quite varied yeah but it's it's very desk based now because we haven't got a choice mm. But it sounds like you can still do quite a lot from your desk, which is great. So you've kind of answered this already, but I think for the listeners, it would be quite good to know if you can explain in a nutshell what it is that Concern Worldwide does as a as an organisation. Yeah, so we are an international uh, development organisation. So we're a charity and we have what we call like a dual mandate. And that means we, we work on issues like education and health and livelihoods and agriculture. Um, and we work in 24 countries which are among the poorest and, if you like, the most fragile. So that, you know, that maybe that government isn't very strong, services don't work very well, people are very prone to disasters, they have very little access to resources. So that's one piece of our work. The other piece is that we're a humanitarian organisation 
situation. And that means that we are ready to step in um, to save lives and reduce suffering where you have an actual disaster strikes. So where you have, um, for example, Cyclone Ida in Mozambique, that would be something that we'd be ready to respond to. So we're in 24 countries. Last year, we worked with 25 million people. And uh, yeah, we have a variety of ways we work, but it's it's a focus on extremely poor people and um yeah, giving them support, resources, training, assistance to, to, to move out of poverty permanently. So that's what our aim is. Amazing. I mentioned it in the introduction, but the reason that you're very kindly giving me your time today is because I have signed up to take the ration challenge, which is to eat the same rations as a Syrian refugee eats. And before I kind of ask you some questions about that. It is worth mentioning that for the listeners, if you're interested in joining the Ration Challenge, there is still time to sign up and join. Um, Or if you prefer to support with your purse, um, I'll be sharing my fundraising link at the end of the episode and on the show notes. Okay. I kind of hinted at it, but Danny, what is the Ration Challenge? Yeah. So the Ration Challenge in its third year now, um, and I'm a bit of an expert. I did it last year and I've signed up to do it again this year. Um, It is a week where you eat the same rations as a Syrian refugee in Jordan. So these are people who would would be supported by our partner in Mm. the Ration Challenge. And you've got, you basically get a a box, but in the box are your lentils, your dried chickpeas, some rice, sardines, or you can substitute with tofu if like me, you're a vegetarian and kidney beans. And then you can add in rice and flour. And then throughout the, the fundraising, you can earn additional rations. So once you get your first bit of sponsorship, you can choose a spice. And uh, yes, it's very important, your choice of a spice. And then as you move through the challenge, you can earn additional things. I mean, it's like you can earn a vegetable, which lasts you for the whole week, or you can earn, I think towards the end of my last one, I got an egg, which Believe me, after six days of the ration challenge, the egg is a big deal. So it's it's sort of trying to give you a little bit of that experience of having a very basic food ration and then you occasionally get opportunities to supplement it. I was going to ask you, actually, I have the spice, but I haven't decided which one to go for yet. Any recommendations? Anything you choose, you may not like that much at the end of the week. So <laughs> I, was, I went for cumin, which I adore. And I didn't then eat it for a couple of weeks afterwards. Oh. (laughs) But, you know, one of the sort of insider tips is if you do manage to form a team, within your team you can share spices. Oh, okay. So I'm in a team this year. I I think probably it's for the mutual support, but also um, because I, I hope that they pick some fun stuff. I'm hoping for some cinnamon as well. So the idea of teams is quite nice. I guess that's for people perhaps who work together in an office or groups of friends or clubs and and they can, am I right, they can join together and, and raise funds as a, as a group rather than as an individual. Yeah. So you set a group fundraising goal and uh, you've got that kind of mutual support. You can share your spice. Um, and this year I'm in a team actually with the head of our concern office in Ireland and in Northern Ireland. 
um, and we run the Rad Trustees. So I don't know whether we're going to be hugely successful or um, we just talk shop all the time. But yeah, so we're in a team this year to give ourselves a bit of mutual support. I like the sound of that. So the Ration Challenge is designed to grow awareness of how others live and of course raise the funds that help. But how does it really help us understand these people's plight, bearing in mind that I'm going to be doing it from my you know, my centrally heated warm house and uh, with my family around me. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess every refugee's circumstances are different. So, like for most refugees, rations is just a part of being a refugee. So you may have a lot of different dimensions, the trauma of the reason you're displaced. You may not know if you can return or not. There's a huge amount of uncertainty about the future. You might not know where family members are. Um, you may face challenges with the shelter, with the sanitation, with food. So the Drashen Challenge doesn't can't emulate that in the same way. It just focuses on this one idea of the rations. And um, when I did it last year, I, it, it was an interesting experience. So I went to Lebanon at the beginning of last year, just before we went into lockdown, with the intention of meeting Syrian refugees and talking to them and seeing the work that we were doing there. And so they are very much in a, in a temporary situation. They're not allowed permanent accommodation. They have to have temporary accommodation. They're really limited in what they can do to earn a living. Um, and when you sort of spend time in people's homes and in people's kitchens, you see this very simple food that people are able to afford, that people have access to. And at the time I was there, it was the end of winter. So there wasn't a lot of vegetables anyway. And the vegetables were so expensive that people just couldn't afford them. So I guess the one thing that the ration challenge gives you a sense of is monotony. You don't have a lot of choice. You can't eat what you want. And actually what I found interesting is in terms of calories, it was actually enough, but it was the boredom. And when you do the ration challenge, there's a recipe book and I got very good at making sort of flatbreads and quite nice dal with the cumin. But, you know, it, it's very much the same every day. And I think it just gives you a slight insight into what that feels like. And I actually found it quite emotional, possibly because of, you know, having to do it for a week. It, 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 it's quite depressing, the, the, the monotony of the food, but also it did, you did get a sense of that, what that might feel like for that, just not to stop. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Of, you know, actually getting involved in this specific way will help us understand the plight a little bit, but way more than just watching something on the telly or reading something on your phone is to actually, even in that one small way, just to experience something. And I'm actually quite apprehensive about doing it because, you know, I'm a food blogger and dinner's the highlight of my day. And I think if you've had a hard day, a nice meal can can cheer you up. And and obviously these people are having a hard time and they don't have that option. So I think I probably will find it quite, quite difficult and rightly so. Yeah, I think, you know, it's not a sense of solidarity, but the, you know, the fact that you do the experience, you raise funds, we do try and make a difference through that. I think that's really important. And I wasn't expecting to get that from it. Um, I was doing it, it just as a, a way to support, but there is something about the challenge itself, which is, which is an experience in itself. So we know that the situation for Syrian refugees is is difficult, um, especially in Jordan, as you just explained, with um, having to be in temporary accommodation. How has coronavirus affected things? Has that made it a lot worse? Yeah, so the, the pandemic has been, I mean, 
it's been such a profound experience and such a huge impact for everybody. I think you can imagine for refugees and people who are displaced, you know, there's another layer of challenges. So that might be, you know, simple things like you're living in quite cramped conditions. So all the things that we need to do, the social distancing, the great, you know, the hand washing, um, issues around sanitation and hygiene, access to good healthcare, access to testing. These are all real big challenges for people who are displaced. But probably the bigger impact is the on the economy. So, you know, everywhere, the UK included, there's been an impact on economies. We've seen things like increases in um, the cost of food stuff, while at the same time, people can't get out. And people who are dependent on a daily wage, which you often are, often as a refugee or a displaced person, you don't have formal employment. You're somehow in the informal sector. And if you're in, at a point where there's restrictions and you can't get out and earn a living, that's a really big challenge. And so what we sort of call like a secondary impact of the pandemic is is probably um, as big an issue as the, as the actual the, the virus itself. Um, and what we've, we've also seen, particularly this latest round of restrictions, um, you know, there's an impact on people's psychosocial well-being, on, on an increase in issues of, of violence in the home because people are stuck at home much more stressed because they're not earning an income. Um, and so, yeah, increases in GBV, while at the same time, there's less services because you're in, a, in an atmosphere of restrictions. So we can't do as much face-to-face -face work. Mm, it sounds so difficult. I don't tend to watch the news on TV perhaps as much as I should, but I do try and keep up to date with um, what's going on around the world. But I don't feel that the situation in Syria that has led to the amount of displaced people that we've been talking about is is as widely known as perhaps it should be. Um, I don't know whether that's just me or whether whether you agree, but it would be interesting to know what the situation is in Syria today. Right. So, I mean, it, it's what you call a protracted crisis. So it's been happening uh, for over 10 years. March 2021 was the 10-year anniversary since the start of the Syrian conflict. And you have these incredible statistics. 6.6 .6 million people have fled Syria since the start of the conflict and 6.7 million are in Syria but displaced from their home. Poverty line. So the number of people living in Syria who are in poverty is 80%, whereas it was 10% before the conflict started. So this is a huge change. And you have, um, you know, people displaced into camps, people who are living in the countries. There's 130 countries where people have asylum at the moment, but most of most people are around Syria. So in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, um, and they're living in host communities. But, you know, the conflict is still going on. And at the moment, there isn't a resolution to it. So you have all of these people displaced without a prospect of returning home. You just can't imagine how how awful that must be to be so terrified that you that you decide you've got to go. I just I just can't imagine it. You mentioned then about they're living in host communities. What what does that actually mean? Does that mean that these people are living in camps or are they within local housing? Like, What does that mean in reality? Yeah, so it's an interesting term, isn't it? It means for the most part that people are invisible. So you would go to a place that's hosting a lot of Syrian refugees and you wouldn't 
see them in a, in a camp, but there's often a lot of restrictions around that. So, for example, in Lebanon, you know, one in four people is a refugee there, but they're not. But Syrian refugees are not allowed to live in permanent accommodation, so they have to be somewhere temporary. So that could be a tent in, a, in on a piece of land. It could be a sort of a shop unit that's converted to a house. We met people there that were living in a converted garage. You know, it's very much you're in the community, but you're not um, encouraged to settle. And yet you have been there for a really long time. And yeah, and I think it's that kind of stasis where you, you meet children who've grown up there and that's where they that's all they've known you realize how how difficult that is the the idea that you have just this very uncertain future so i mean i guess what we can do as a as a as an aid organization as a, as a charity is just make that a bit better so we do a lot of work to improve shelter. You know, in some of these places we're putting in windows, it's very cold in winter and, and doing basic kind of upgrades to bathrooms. We help a lot with water sanitation, making sure there's good latrines, great places to wash. We do a lot of work um, with what we call psychosocial support. So helping people sort of deal with the, the challenges of everyday life and um, supporting them to, to have better family life and, uh, you know, more solid communities and um, we do a little bit of work helping people secure incomes as well. They must just have such a vast range of bathroom facilities, kitchen, cooking facilities because the accommodation varies so massively. So it sounds as though whilst you can't change the the rules that are set by that country. So for example, in Lebanon, not being allowed to be in permanent accommodation, at least you can make their stay where they are more comfortable. Yeah. It is just shocking to think that this is going on over such a long period of time. And yet, they're, as you say, they're in stasis. They, they are almost in limbo. They can't move forward, but they also can't go home. It sometimes is a little bit frustrating because obviously we can't operate at the sort of political and diplomatic level that's needed to resolve conflict like that. But it, to me, it's a little bit about trying to give people at least some dignity in, in where they are and make that a little bit easier for them. But obviously, yeah, the, the ideal is then for, that, for them to be able to move forward. I have probably the hardest question to ask you. Um, what do you think the the solution is? How do we stop these situations happening around the world? I mean, so the situation, these situations are particularly if we look at the Syrian conflict, it's it's a political solution that's needed. So it needs political will and it needs a diplomatic resolution to the conflict. So we've um, called since the beginning on all the parties of the conflict to take steps to bring around a peaceful solution, in particular avoiding harm to civilians and ensure that organisations like ourselves, humanitarian organisations, can access unimpeded and safely people who need humanitarian um, support. Because obviously when you've got a conflict, that's difficult in itself. So we need to be able to to be there and to provide assistance safely. So it feels like it's it's that we actually can't provide a solution ourselves, but it is something that we, we try and advocate for with governments, including the government of the UK, that, that we feel can have an influence on that outcome. That is probably the hardest question um, and almost a end of the podcast question, because clearly 
these situations will keep happening. And, and whilst you guys can't have the the political might to to stop these people from fighting, you at least are making people's lives easier in the in the interim. It's just such a shame that organisations like Concern are needed, you know. But thank goodness that you're you're here. So I feel like I'm about to segue into something a, a little bit lighter, which is to to bring it back round to the ration challenge. You've mentioned a few times that you that you've done it yourself and that you're actually going to be doing it again this year. What advice do you have for someone like me and perhaps listeners who decide that they'd like to sign up and do it as well? What advice do you have for me as a first timer? Yeah, so we've kind of touched on spice choice, very important because that's the thing that's going to transform your your lentils and your rice. The, the key, and hopefully your listeners are going to support you in this, is for every five people you reach out to to sponsor you, you get a tea bag. Hmm. And seven tea bags is is seven days of, of having a decent hot drink. And if you're a coffee drinker like me, it does substitute for it. And you can use a tea bag more than once, I've found. In fact, several times a day. So reach out get your tea bags and get your fundraising done up front if you can. But also because it's supposed to feel like a collective effort. So the Ration Challenges have their own Facebook page and that's like full of people sharing tips and advice and recipes. We have coaches. So, you know, talk to your coach. They'll help you think about the fundraising side, but also the challenge itself. And uh, I can't tell you for sure, but I would say possibly a team as well. I'm quite excited to try something a little bit more mutually reinforcing with the team this year. I'm wondering if any of my listeners want to join in and we can create an at the source uh, Russian challenge team. That would, be, that would be really good, wouldn't it? Yeah, definitely. I yeah. will. I'll drop that on social media. And if anybody wants to join me, then please do. I've got my ration pack here. Um, I've got my vouchers for my flour and extra rice, I think it is. I have one tea bag so far. I am a big tea drinker, so I'm definitely going to be reusing that bag. And I think I've got one vegetable, uh, 170 grams, I think it is, for the week. So I think I might go for maybe carrots because they kind of go with a lot of things and they're quite filling. But I will have a think about that. Yeah, I'd, uh, an onion is worth considering. Oh, you know, because an onion goes in everything. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot to think about. And I think the, the, ra- the recipe book is definitely going to come in handy. But I can imagine that you have to get creative with it to try and avoid the boredom because food is one of those things that can bring you a little bit of joy and comfort but if you are literally eating the very same thing every day that's going to be incredibly hard yeah I mean yeah but also you know you also develop a sort of sense for the beauty of simple things like you know a really nice flatbread that's what I used to have for breakfast every day nice and warm and freshly cooked it, it, it can raise the tone of the day, even if the rest of the day is quite rice and lentily. Mm. So, I mean, it does push your creative um, cooking skills to the very limit, I think. With the sardines, did you have them, because that's, of, oh, sorry, you had tofu, didn't you? But with that piece of protein, did you have that in one meal or did you have a little tiny bit every day? How did you split it up? Yeah, I think because I was with tofu, so, you know, you can spread that over a few meals mm. and uh, yeah, it's worth it. If you've got one little thing every day that's a bit different, it sort of is a bit of a boost. Yeah. I did the Live Below the Line Challenge uh, a couple of years ago with hunger, with the Hunger Project UK. Although I feel that that was quite different 
in the fact that it was highlighting people who are living below the poverty line. I had five pounds for five meals and I went to Aldi and I'd written this list. But actually what I came out with was a little bit different. I really wanted eggs. I wanted to buy organic or free range eggs, but I couldn't within my budget. So I didn't have them. And actually that was quite a a privileged position for me to come from because I'd been able to make that choice. But I think with the ration challenge, this is going to be harder because the ingredients are what they are. Um, and they are extremely the same. You know, with the Live Below the Line, I was able to buy a couple of packets of like chicken flavored or vegetable flavored super noodles, for example. So my my meal, my evening meal wasn't exactly the same every day. Whereas with this, it will be, I think. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I did, I brought back these beautiful chitengi cloths from Zambia. So they're like the wax dyed cloths you see that with the, what you, you know, the kind of African print cloths and so I'd have that on the table and a really nice cup for my tea (laughs) as a way to sort of make it feel special so the things that I could control I tried to you know make things feel a bit brighter that's a really nice idea I like that a lot and also if you're posting on social media which we would encourage everybody to do it, it means that you've got something you know to look at yeah we've we've talked about this quite a lot already but so that it's crystal clear, if my listeners do want to get involved, what should they do? So if you go onto the website, it's uk. It's very straightforward. You know, it explains everything about the challenge and you can click on there and you can register. You need to register before the 31st of May because we've got to send you the pack. So once you register, we do ask you to self-sponsor. Um, I can't remember what the minimum amount is. It's not excessive, but that that once we get that, then we send out the pack, and then you're set up. And then there's a you, you can get in then through to the Facebook page and start talking to other ration challengers, and then the coach will be in touch. So yeah, it's very straightforward to sign up, and the website is really good. And with the pack, you also get some instructions and your recipe book and things like that. And the the book included the booklet that has all of the information about where the money's going and examples of some of the people that you've worked with was a really, really interesting read. I think um, there were also some tips in there about how you can share your experience and also the experience of the people that we're supporting in a in a really positive way. Because I think sometimes it can feel quite daunting to just say to people, oh, will you sponsor me for this thing? You know, please, can you sponsor me because I'm going to eat rations for a week? I think it's about how you go beyond that and talk about the real issues here and the reasons that we're, that we're going through this. I found that pack really helpful. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And there's quite a lot of resources to try and and just create a little bit better that understanding of why we're doing what we're doing and how the benefits, the proceeds of the Ration Challenge, actually how they're used and how they go to help people. Yeah, absolutely. So my target is £496. And currently, I think I'm up to nearly 300 So I'm quietly confident that I can hopefully make it. I read that £496 is enough to feed three people for a year, which is absolutely incredible. A, that just doesn't seem like a lot of money. But B, imagine if if we all do that. Imagine if we get an at-the-source team and we all do that. It just would make such a difference to some people who really need it. Yeah, I think that sounds like a great idea to have an at-the-source team. So just to give you a sense, um, since last year's Ration Challenge, we've worked with over 6,000 refugees. 
providing the food ration packs and providing healthcare for over a thousand people. And then because of COVID, we did um, our COVID-19 kits with hygiene supplies to make sure people were able to at least have soap and things they needed to wash their hands and help prevent the spread of COVID. And then some of the funding we would also use to help other displaced people elsewhere. So in places outside of Jordan, so Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, and also some of our work in South Sudan and the DRC, places where people are also displaced due to conflict or disaster. That's the thing. This is just one one thing, one place. And of course, this is happening all over the world. I think it's fair to say that this is a really huge topic and we've only really scratched the surface. And I guess what I hope that the listeners will do off the back of this is go to the Concern website and go and read more and learn more about the situation in Syria and with the with the displaced people around the area, but also take time to read some of the individual stories. That's one of the things, Danny, that I really found impactful for me was in the literature that comes with the Russian pack. And I know it's on your website as well. There are some of those individual stories of real people who who are in this situation and who are being helped and supported by the money raised by the Russian challenge, but also by the work that you guys do on a, on a broader level. So yeah, it, it's, it has been very top line, but hopefully has given people, um, an insight into the fantastic work you do and encourage them to come and join me. I'm going to definitely put some details in the show notes about uh, setting up um, an outsource team. And if you guys out there can spare some money, it would be fantastic to get a donation as well. So just go to rationchallenge.org.uk slash alex-rider. R-Y-D-E-R, not like Alex Rider the Spy. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me, Danny. It's been brilliant. Thanks, Alex. And best of luck with the challenge. 